This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic. This week, I chat with Jeff Holland about Azure Functions. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 88. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Holland. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invite. So you are a principal product manager at Microsoft Azure, and I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do as a principal product manager at Azure. Sure. So I've been at Microsoft now for a little over seven years. About five years ago, I switched to focusing on serverless. Uh, so I was one of the original members when Azure was like, hey, we want to try to go bigger and serverless. So spent some time in a different product called Logic Apps, which is serverless workflows. And then for the last three or four years, I've been running the Azure Functions team. And so my day-to-day -day entails understanding a little bit about how the product's being used, talking to customers, and then helping formulate the backlog with our engineering team and deliver features to hopefully make people's lives easier with serverless. Awesome. Well, so I'm super excited to have you here because I think I, I talked to you a year ago at uh, Serverless Days Nashville, uh, yes. and I was talking about having you on the show um, because uh, Azure Functions and what Microsoft is doing with serverless is is absolutely fascinating. Like if there was anybody else who's sort of in the space race, uh, you know, against uh, against AWS when it comes to the advancements in serverless, I would think that would be Microsoft Azure. Um, and it's pretty exciting because I feel like you are doing things differently. Um, and I've had a conversation with people from IBM Cloud and Google and of course AWS, and everybody is doing things slightly differently. So I'd love it if you could just maybe give a quick overview of, of what Azure Functions are um, and sort of the general serverless offering that, that Microsoft has right now. Sure, yeah. So you are like, I guess the best place to start is Azure Functions. And you can in many ways think of it like AWS Lambda. To your point, there are some differences here and there, and I'm sure we might even highlight them as we go. Sure. But at its core, hopefully it is the same. You know, I want to write some event-driven compute. Here's my language of choice. Go ahead and publish it and have it do its serverless scale option. I think some of the things that folks notice from the get-go, there's a few application concepts that are a little bit different. Right. We enable you to develop and write in what's called a function app. And so you can actually create like four or five different functions that are one deployment thing. And then those mm -hmm. four or five functions can, can scale with each other. Uh, but the other one that I always tend to talk about a lot is just the other supporting products that are around. So right. you've likely heard, and people who've listened to this have likely heard like, hey, serverless is more than just FAS. Uh, but when you think about the supporting pieces of technology, whether that's serverless workflows with logic apps, whether that's stateful functions with durable functions, uh, going into, I guess, the NoSQL database Cosmos DB has a serverless SKU. So that's oftentimes where we end up talking a lot more is saying, hey, FAS and functions are going to play a critical role, but it's all these other supporting pieces too uh, that you'll start to see those differences as well. Right. Yeah. And I think that, again, serverless 
at least the evolution of it and what I always think about is it's event driven, like you said. And so you're getting these events and, and uh, in uh, Microsoft Azure or Azure functions, they're called triggers. Um, but, uh, and, and again, if people don't, if, I, I'm hoping if people are listening to this podcast, they know what serverless is, they know, you know, event driven compute, at least they get the idea of it. But basically it's, you know, something gets triggered, you know, a queue is written in it, right? And it, it triggers that, that um, Azure function or, uh, you know, a database record is written and it triggers that or somebody uploads something to blobs storage. So those are your triggers. But something that's really interesting, and I'd love to know more about is this idea of bindings. Um, mm. So what what's different? I, I understand triggers, but what, what's the deal with bindings? Yeah, bindings are, there's two different types of bindings. So there's input bindings where it passes data into your functions and then output bindings where it's going to write some data. So in the same way that you have this big list of triggers, like I want to trigger on a queue, I want to trigger on a storage account, you can have bindings that talk to these different services too. And in a similar experience to triggers, you don't write that code. So like the best example is, let's say I want an HTTP trigger. So I want my function to trigger on an HTTP request. Yeah. But maybe that HTTP request has something in the path where it has like a customer ID. So it's like when they call it, the path's gonna have a customer ID. And that customer ID has a customer record in my database. And rather than having the first few lines of my function be like, okay, pull, parse out the customer ID, connect to the database, pull in that customer details, you can define what's called an input binding, where you're like, okay, my trigger is HTTP, I wanna pull in data from my database mm -hmm. and the data that you should pull in maps to the path of the http trigger so you can kind of do this metadata mapping you say talk to cosmos db the nosql serverless database in azure and what will happen is your function triggers and it's going to automatically go grab that data from the database pull it in and stick it into your function for you so it just kind of injects it in for reference data for whatever else so that's an input binding more commonly, we see people using output bindings, which would be, I guess, the opposite of that. You can almost kind of connect it. It's like, <laughs> hey, when this HTTP request is done, I want to write a record to an event stream like Kinesis or Event Hubs is the Azure flavor or a database. Same idea. You set the value in some variable. And then through metadata, through like this JSON file, you're like, hey, when my function is done, whatever the value is of this variable, I want you to go write that to a queue message or to an event message or something else. So it, they're totally optional. You don't have to use input bindings or output bindings, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, in the spirit of serverless, people are like, oh, less code, that's great. Right. If I'm pulling data in from a database or sending something out, maybe I could use these bindings instead. Yeah, and I and I love this because because uh, I, I I've been asking um, for this type of functionality from another cloud provider for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, and but I love that idea because uh, you know functions as a service are you know generally are supposed to be at least stateless, right? So they're not supposed to you know you're supposed to be able to spin up thousands of these things. Um, and every time you spin up a new one, there's nothing in there, right? It's just your code. So you have to go and retrieve data somehow. So if you do pass in an ID for a customer, usually your first bit of code is that boilerplate that. It has to go and look up that customer record, download that data into the function, then do what you need to do. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, you want to send that event off. You want to queue that for some additional processing. And then maybe you also want to return event, you know, something back to the, uh, you know, to the HTTP request so that the customer gets something. Um, that's a lot of extra code that you have to write. So that's, that's really cool that you can do that, um, you know, just with configuration basically. Um, and I guess one of the, the, the things I, you know, questions I have is, you know, I, I get being able to write to maybe your own services, like write to a queue uh, or write to an event bus, but what about to like third party SaaS services? 
Yeah, we have a few of those, not as many, uh, but but there are a few output bindings for services like Twilio is one that I use for mm. a few of my stuff where same idea, but instead of saying like, hey, whatever I set to this variable right to a database, we have a Twilio binding or a SendGrid binding that's like, hey, this is the variable that will give you the details of a text message that I want sent to a mobile device, mm-hmm. and it will integrate with that as well. So you can pull in these different extensions, is what it's called, that give yeah. you trigger and binding functionality. And so there's some dozen or so extensions today, including mm-hmm. things to like Microsoft services and elsewhere like yeah. Twilio that you can use uh, that can just reduce that code. Oh, that's amazing. So another thing I notice about uh, with serverless in general, especially with fast, and you said, you know, fast uh, is much or serverless is much more than fast. Um, But I often see when people are new to it, that they say, I'm going to take my application, I'm going to stick it into one function. Um, I'm just going to let it all run in that one function. Uh, And, and they, they don't really take advantage of some of these other, you know, some of the other trickery that is, uh, is available to them. So I'm curious with the, uh, and I want to talk to you about composition in a minute, but uh, Mm. I'm curious, which bindings are people using? I mean, this idea of input and output bindings, it's super powerful, reduces code dramatically, but are people using that? Like, what are the common ones that that people use? Or is there a lot of fallback to the whole monolithic, you know, uh, functions as a service? In general, I am always surprised with how many people use bindings and tell me like we love bindings. Like, okay. and part of it is that you know, is is convenient as that sounds to have a variable that you set in something else to storage somewhere. That sometimes folks will kind of hit the boundaries of bindings. Is what if you want a little bit more control over? the thing you're doing. So let's imagine we don't have an output binding today for SQL, but mm-hmm. let's say you were talking to like a SQL relational database. Yeah, it'd be cool to set a variable and it goes to SQL relational database, but what if you wanted to execute something like a store procedure? Or yeah. what if you wanted to like have a little bit more control or stream the data into a, a blob instead of just sticking it in a variable? You can't do that with output bindings. And so we usually just tell people that's okay, just use the SDK. But people are like, oh, we love output binding. So the what like uh, the most popular ones are probably queues. Like queues are just such an important part of of right. serverless when you when you're distributing things using that message broker. So I think queues takes the cake for us. Storage is probably just another useful one, you know, storing some whatever here and there. And then the, the final one would be database. But I, I, I would guess, and I haven't looked at the binding data specifically, I can think of our trigger data uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more clearly. But I would guess that like queues is twice as popular as the next thing down when it right. comes to what people are integrating with from their functions. Yeah, I mean, well, queues, anyways, you can use those in in multiple directions, especially if you're just trying to like minimize downstream pressure and things like that. There's all kinds of reasons why you would use that. But but actually, speaking of of something like downstream pressure, so what happens if there's an error? Because I mean, obviously, you you do a mm-hmm. lot of error handling in your code. That's something that a lot of people do. Now, I actually the talk that I gave at Nashville um, at Service Days Nashville was about not putting error handling in your code and, and instead using um, you know the features of the cloud to handle mm-hmm. some of those errors for you. So uh, so what are what are the error handling capabilities in in inputs and bindings? Yeah, this is another one where there's this give and take because the way that it ends up working behind the scenes is you're almost forced to go into this world where you can't do the error handling because the way the platform sees it, it's like your execution is done. I see Mm. you have this value in this local variable. I'm going to go take it from here. But if there was some issue that happened, 
there would be log messages and metrics that got emitted, but your execution finished. You can't yeah. really go in and try and catch it and redo it. So you end up doing these types of compensation type stuff where you are getting that alert or you're getting that metric in that event that says, hey, the output binding failed. Uh, but that's also a reason where we see, again, like bindings are super convenient, but I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want folks who are using Azure Functions to think, oh, well, if I'm talking to a queue, I have to use bindings because some people uh, are like, I actually yeah. want to have a try catch and maybe retry it a few times in code. We have some retry policies that we'll let you provide, like, yeah. hey, retry something three or four times. But for the most part, you end up being... Like I'm gotta, I've got to make sure I'm keeping an eye on those logs when I'm using something like output binding. So definitely a consideration where it's like, okay, maybe the convenience might not work for this scenario if I need a little bit more fine grain control. Right now with the retry capabilities, is that something though, like if I try to write to a queue with a, with a binding, uh, is that going to try multiple times or is it just, if it fails, I'm going to get a warning? Uh, we'll try multiple times and then when it fails, you'll get that warning. Gotcha. Okay, interesting. Um, all right, so are there any uh, any best practices though? I mean, you you mentioned this idea of like if you need more fine grained control, you know, then just write the code yourself. Uh, I I would be super happy if it was like we'll add more fine grained control for you, so you don't have to write the code mm -hmm. yourself. Um, but I mean, like, what are the best practices? I mean, when when would you say you know use a binding versus writing your own code? Like, what what is the fine grain? What's that? What's that line? I guess for that fine grained control. Yeah, the I think people usually bump it pretty early on when they're trying to like bindings, all of the binding info is metadata, like what it writes to, how it writes to, the name of the stuff that it's creating, the content it's pulling from your own variable, but all of the details, like for a storage blob, like what's the name for the file that I'm creating in your storage account, that's usually defined through metadata. And I mentioned at the beginning, you can kind of pass some of that through. You can be like, oh, well, the the thing in the path parameter make that the file name but you're still limited in all the right. things you can control so usually once you start bumping up against that and there's even patterns where people do these like gymnastics is what i would almost call it to get everything <laughs> to work but once you start bumping up against those types of limits if you end up find yourself being like oh i really want to do this thing with binding but it's not super convenient mm -hmm. you're almost going to be better off at that point to just use the sdk now to your point I like I wish there there actually should be a little bit of a cleaner ramp to saying, okay, well, can you at least get me started with getting that mm -hmm. SDK? Because there are some best practices too. I think shared the same with Lambda, like connection reuse is the one I see the most right. often biting people in the butt is where they're connecting to a database and they're creating a new connection for every single execution. And what you don't wanna do, do is move that connect. Yeah, don't do that no matter your provider. Uh, right. We wanna reuse things. Uh, so that's the big one. But again, to your point, like there's a little bit of a, a cognitive leap there for folks where they're doing all this through metadata. They're not really thinking about the database. They're just setting a variable. Now they've hit a bump, whether it's around error handling or around configuration. Well, you got to make sure you use those SDKs the right way. And candidly, it's like, hopefully you've read the docs or else you <laughs> might end up uh, moving from bindings to shooting yourself in the foot.
Right. Yeah. Well, reading the docs is always good advice, and uh, and, and everyone does it, right? It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Just like you read your iTunes uh, terms of service, right? Or iTunes terms of service. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. So, so another thing about serverless that I think gets a lot of criticism is the idea of cold starts, um, mm. and. Uh, and, and certainly functions as a service, it's on demand. I mean, that's the greatest thing about it is that it'll just scale and scale and scale. But there is that penalty in the beginning when a new function, you know, a, a trigger comes in, it needs to warm up a, you know, a container or whatever it is that's that running that in the background, that's running in the background. Um, so how does Azure handle or how does Azure Functions handle cold starts? And, and how much of an impact do you see that sort of affecting, you know, your, your customers' use cases, I guess? Yeah, cold start is uh, like the the final boss of serverless. It almost feels <laughs> like, and I, I, uh, I, I really want to see better progress on cold start across the board. And this is like an area of of incredible innovation too. Like if you look at some of the numbers of AWS Lambda, Google Cloud, and Azure Functions, it's pretty impressive what they can do, but it's still a challenge. And honestly, we are, we're constantly working to get our numbers down. So mm -hmm. I guess there's kind of two answers. One is how do we help get the numbers down? And then the other one is what happens if it's just too much to handle um, and you have no tolerance for it. So we employ a few things. I think a lot of these are fairly similar, though. I don't actually know how, you know, Lambda or Google Cloud Functions run behind the scenes or other providers um, who might be doing. But a few things we do, we, we employ this concept called placeholders, mm -hmm. where rather than like saying, you know, file new VM or file new container whenever there's a function, we actually have this pool of containers that are already running the language, they're already running yeah. all of our bits, and then we just hurry and pop your code and we mount it um, as a zip and we try to start it up as fast as possible. In the last six months, we actually have been rolling out some machine learning too. So we've got some folks in Microsoft Research who worked at looking at a bunch of historical data for functions. It's actually all open source. It's anonymized, but if you go to GitHub, you can actually see a bunch of Azure Functions anonymized data. Awesome. And they trained a bunch of models so that hopefully, Jeremy, if you are using Azure Functions and it's Monday at 8 a.m., that our model hopefully would get smart enough over time to say, oh, there's a 70% chance that at Monday at 8 a.m. Jeremy's about to hit this thing. We're actually just going to warm it up before he even executes it. Mm. Uh, so that's something that we've been rolling with for a while. But even then, the and then just trying to make progress on the underlying technology, the underlying platform. There's a lot of components to building a multi-tenant secured service that all add a little bit of additional latency. So something we're aware of. And then I guess to the second part of that, that question is we do have some options to fully mitigate it or partially mitigate it. The one is the fateful pinger. We have folks, I mentioned you can create this function app concept. So you yeah. can have multiple functions in there. One thing that even I have done, and I would say don't quote me on this, but I'm on a podcast now, my name's right there. You can create another function in that same app that's a, that triggers on a timer. So a timer mm. is a first class concept and functions. Just have that thing trigger once every 10 minutes and your whole app is gonna get poked every 10 minutes by us. You don't even have to poke it. We'll poke right. it ourselves on that interval <laughs> and keep it warm. And then the final option though, I, I, I say this last for a reason because there are cost implications too, is you can deploy your function in the premium SKU, which right. lets you pre-allocate and pre-warm where we will keep it warm, not just by poking it, we'll actually just keep the process running 24 seven. Uh, but you're paying now for right. that kind of consistent compute across that time. 
Right. Well, I tell you one thing, if anything that came out of this conversation is I am now going to code name cold starts Bowser. Um, that is what I'm going uh, I'm I'm to use that now. And if anybody asks me, I'm just going to say Bowser. Um, awesome. Um, all right. So what are, what are some of the other um, serverless services that are in Azure? Because a big part of it, way beyond FAS, um, you know, this idea of, of managed services, you know, whether it's databases or blob storage or things like that, uh, there's such a blurry line now in some mm -hmm. cases, right? Some things are sort of serverless. People put serverless on it so that it sounds good, I guess. Um, but, but like, what are some of the other major ones that are available in Azure, um, and that again, sort of a first-class citizens, I guess, with uh, uh, with the with the functions. Yeah, and you kind of alluded it to at the beginning too. There's almost, and I imagine your listeners would fall in this as well. There's there's the almost the purest view of serverless, and we'll start with those services, and then there's that if you went to the azure.com/serverless marketing page. You'll see a lot of services that right. we could have a very good conversation around. Like, well, how serverless are they really? Uh, but in terms of the like the the traditional definition of serverless, the you know only pay when you use it. Those things, the service that I see paired with functions the most, and for good reasons, is something uh, called Azure Logic Apps, mm -hmm. which you can think of it in some ways like AWS Step Functions. If you're okay. familiar with that, uh, same underlying concept where there's a declarative workflow definition being created and it's going to help go and orchestrate something for you. I think the the things to check out if you haven't before with Logic Apps is the first, it's got a visual designer that you can do in the portal, you can do in Visual Studio Code, so that instead of crafting that JSON, uh, which everyone loves writing JSON uh, almost right, as absolutely. much as they love writing YAML. <laughs> Instead of writing that JSON, you're just saying like, do this, you know, add a parallel step here, do that and the other. Uh, but the other one that, that uh, a lot of folks find use from is it's got all of these connectors. So there's like 300 plus, I think we might've just crossed wow. 400 connectors where, you know, maybe I'm calling function, function, function. And then I want to drop some data in Salesforce or I want to mm -hmm. update a Google sheet. Like there are connectors for all of these different services that you pop in that workflow too. So Logic Apps is the one that there's a tight pairing with, especially when you wanna integrate with other things or yep. orchestrate stuff that works out really nice. And and what about like, um... Uh, the Cosmos DB and, and things like that. Like, and, and then you have a you have Azure, I think it's just called Azure Blob Storage, right? Like yeah. good naming there because that's what it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was learning the cloud though, I was so confused <laughs> when I'd be like, get a blob. And I was like, what is a blob? Right. Uh, it's just a file. It's just some random bit of binary data. Right. <laughs> or right. yeah, blob I think stands for something i don't know yeah it um, probably does yeah <laughs> i really do think it's an acronym which i should know yeah uh, yeah so cosmos db you can think of it again i know a lot of folks listening uh, are familiar with aws so this is similar to dynamo db right. uh, obviously there's going to be differences here and there mm -hmm. but there is a serverless skew in that one so that you pay is you know for your read writes on demand and you get some free tier Azure storage itself doesn't have a free tier. I would imagine similar to S3 is how mm -hmm. you can kind of think of that. Um, though it's just so inexpensive that right. you're paying some fraction of a penny here and there. Uh, another one too, if I, uh, not to admit, so API management, similar to API gateway, right. uh, that's got a consumption serverless queue. And then Azure event grid, Mm. which uh, is similar to, is it Event Bridge? Is event that the bridge. AWS? Yes, not yep. to be confused with Alibaba's Event Bridge, who also oh, wow. who, has, who has something that integrates with AWS Event Bridge, which is, <laughs> is very confusing, but yes. So Event Grid is the, is the Azure one. 
Yes, that's right. Event Grid uh, that lets you do some pub-sub stuff, and that it also mm. pulls in events from other providers as well to trigger your serverless stuff. So those are kind of the core traditional way. I guess SQL also has a serverless skew as well. So if you just want a SQL database, there's a flavor that will go auto-scale to zero, and you only pay per transaction. Awesome. And they all have... Um... They're all integrated with with Azure Functions, right? There's all bindings and, and and triggers and things like that. Yep, yep, exactly. So hopefully it's not too hard to use them together and building yep. a solution. Like between all of those building blocks, you can put together some pretty impressive things that right. if they're not being called, don't charge any money. Awesome. Cool. All right. So I want to move on to uh, composition. So function composition, this is something that um, uh, this is maybe whatever the level is before the final boss, um, because there are a lot of um, there are a lot of attempted solutions to this. And 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 by function composition, I mean, sort of this idea of breaking individual functions into very discrete pieces of logic. So maybe I have one piece of logic that just, you know, calls uh, an SDK or a, an API somewhere and, and downloads that data. Maybe I have one that just does some sort of encryption algorithm for me. Maybe I have one that, you know, pulls data from another data store or writes data to a queue or something like that, um, you know, if I wasn't using bindings. Um, so I might have all these different functions that do very specific specific pieces of business logic for me. Um, and I want to compose them together because I want to reuse them. Uh, and and the step functions you mentioned, which is the AWS concept for this, they just recently released this uh, synchronous express workflows. So you mm -hmm. can actually kind of glue them all together in a synchronous pattern and have it re return data uh, immediately, which is kind of cool. Of course, there's the cold start issue and some of those other things that come into play there. Um, but what are some of the options in Azure? Because you mentioned logic apps, which is mm -hmm. a really cool feature. And it's almost like a, it's almost like a no code or very, very low code solution to that. Yeah. Um, but like, what else do you have? Because you've, you've experimented and have some other products that, that do this, this composition. Yeah. And if there's kind of one really interesting piece of tech that's being cooked up in Azure land that I think all folks should just look at and pay attention to, because I do think these types of tools are going to spread beyond, it's mm -hmm. durable functions or right. stateful functions. Uh, and there's even some open source tech too that plays very similar roles. In fact, some of the people who kind of built the tech for durable functions are building things like temporal workflow or cadence workflow. But what this lets you do, it's it's almost bizarre how it does it. And so this might be something that you want to go look it up. Uh, you can write, so to your point, Jeremy, let's say I've got my six different functions that are all doing their own thing. One of mm -hmm. them is like, uh, if I'm doing an order processing pipeline, one of them is like get product details. The other one is create a shipping label. The other one is charge the customer, blah, blah, blah. All these individual pieces of unit. And I want to compose them together. I can create this special type of function called the durable function where I write using code that process that I want. So I could be writing in JavaScript code, in Python code, in .NET code and say, okay, you know, first thing, call the function that gets the details. Once that's done, call this function in the same way, like just the same way I would almost write, like call this API, call this one. So I'm writing yep. in code to call these different pieces. I can write loops. I can tell it in code to like do the loop in parallel. I can tell it to do the loop sequentially. And so I can orchestrate these processes that can run for weeks at a time, for months at a time. Maybe they only take 15 seconds and it will go ahead and compose it for you. And behind the scenes, what it's doing 
is more or less the same thing that you're doing by hand if you're not dur using durable function. It's storing things in storage. It's storing things in queues. It's queuing these things up. So it's not, we're not letting you create a function that can actually run for 45 minutes or that mm -hmm. actually, you know, waits there and double charges you for those calls. It's just this special function that's doing all of this state management for you behind the scenes right. to let you actually compose this in code. So you end up having something similar to a logic app or a step function, but in this case, it's written entirely in code. Same qualities though of a function. It only charges you when a step's actually executing. So for example, one of the ways I use durable functions today is to manage my resources. I spin up new stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, a new product got announced. I'm going to go <laughs> give this a ride. I'm not as good at deleting them after the right. fact, though. Yeah, <laughs> and so sometimes I get a, a nasty scare where I'm like, oh, yeah, I was trying out this new database thing, and now I have this bill. So I have spun up a durable function in my subscription where whenever I create a resource, it triggers this durable function, and it sets a timer on itself. And it's like, wait for a day, and after a day, send me a text message and see if I want to extend it longer. But if not, just delete the resource for me automatically. Ah, okay. And so in theory, this is a function that like is running for a day or longer, but I only pay for like the few seconds at the beginning where it triggers and sets the timer. And then I pay for a few seconds a day later when it wakes itself back up and sends me that text message. So you can do these really interesting patterns where you're composing or managing state or doing things more long running with this durable functions uh, product. Um, that's also, you can see all the code on GitHub too. So again, very interesting, a little bit complicated when you try to figure out like what's actually happening here, right. uh, but worth keeping an eye on. Awesome, and, and so can you do synchronous and asynchronous with, with those? Uh, yes. So same idea. You kind of alluded to it with step functions. I imagine. I don't know the ins and out. You can say, hey, start this orchestration and then synchronously return back to me a response five, mm -hmm. 10, 20 seconds later. Or the default behavior is async where async. you kick this thing off and it's going to immediately return to you back a, like, hey, we started your thing. Check this endpoint for the status. And then you would just pull that endpoint. So you can control do you want it to hang out and wait and then send you back the eventual response or just go run its thing off in the background? Now, when you're doing the durable functions, are you calling other functions that you've already written? And so then do you have control over like resource management of those individual functions or, or how does that work? Yeah, so there's you can call some function anywhere in your subscription over as long as it's got an HTTP endpoint. So if it's like mm -hmm. an HTTP trigger, there's just like call this HTTP function. Or you can write what are a special type of function. We have a trigger called an activity trigger, mm -hmm. which are functions that are intended to only be called from a durable function. And gotcha. so you might have functions that like, this is always gonna be called from a durable function. There's no HTTP endpoint. It's not listening to its own queue. It's just called an activity trigger and you trigger them off too. And it, it's almost the same way as, uh, you know, you, you don't have any more control over it necessarily than if you were just composing things yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll just hopefully make it easier to reuse them uh, across your account. Right. So is this is this something that's sort of a replacement for logic apps or is there like what's how would you choose between the two? The the guidance that I give the most and that I see most people falling, uh, not for, I'm not trying to trick them. <laughs> I really want people to be successful, but like falling into it's personal preference. It really becomes a like th th there's almost a, we joked about this when we were talking about this podcast. When you think about things of 
you know, in AWS land, writing cloud formation templates or writing CDK stuff. Right. And there are strong opinions on both sides of like, hey, the eventual YAML is the best thing. And no, it's so much more convenient to express things in code. Right. It's a similar type of, it's like, do you want to describe your composability through code and through like JavaScript code, or do you really want to do it in some declarative workflowy state machine language thing? Uh, Whichever one of those you want, you can do very similar things across both. Uh, I meant like there's differences, like Logic Apps has all those connectors. So if you want to use one of those connectors, that might tip the scales to to Mm. Logic Apps. But in general, it's the personal preference is what I end up telling folks to choose. Right. And and are there limitations to this? Like if I use logic apps, would I run into some limitations maybe for latency or maybe what I can do or same thing with durable functions? Or is it something also where like I'd be better off maybe if I only had like two or three steps, maybe just composing mm-hmm. those all into a single function themselves rather than than adding that extra latency from a durable function or logic app? Yeah, the, there's a few here that pop to the top of mind. Logic apps, uh, the pricing is a little bit different in in like dollar for dollar, I would think logic apps will be a little bit more expensive than durable function. So if you're optimizing for price, the durable function one will be the one you want to go. In terms of scale, they're pretty related. The one, the 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 bottleneck that folks end up running into with durable functions, and this is probably deeper down the line, I imagine most folks who are listening to this are just getting introduced to it. But I mentioned behind the scenes, it's storing a bunch of state and pulling state for you. You actually, you give it details of like, this is my storage account and this is my queue that I want you to use and we'll go use that to store the state. Uh, If you end up doing like really high volumes, like thousands and thousands of these durable orchestrations a second, the underlying storage account will actually start to be like, you're reading and writing a whole lot of stuff. Like you only have a certain amount of limits here. So you end up having to either move to a premium skew or having to re-architect in a way where you can shard a little bit better. Uh, And Logic Apps has some stuff because it's kind of this managed workflow service. Uh, I think you would actually get higher in theory scale numbers in a Logic App than a durable function. But again, the real bottleneck is going to be that underlying state and that underlying storage account. So a few things right. to consider there as well. Uh, latency, I think, is pretty similar between the two in that like both of them are writing data between steps. So there's like a little few milliseconds between each of those functions as yeah. it coordinates itself and stores state. Uh, I think they're they're going to be pretty comparable, though. Right. And I was going to actually ask you about the billing um, for that, because I know some of the other services will charge you in, in some of the other clouds will charge you like every step you take, you mm. get charged there, then you get charged for the execution of the function or whatever the services that mm. it, that it's executing. So how does the how does the billing compare? I mean, you said that logic apps were maybe a little bit more expensive, that might be because they bill per step, um, exactly durable functions just build ex- bill execution time. Yep, exactly. Logic Apps is a per action charge. So every step is a charge. Durable Functions is charging you for the gigabit seconds that you use when when a process is actually happening. So the thing to note here is that when no, like the durable function is just in charge of coordinating what step do I do next. So during that period of time where it's deciding what's the next step I do, you're paying for the gigabit seconds. When another step is actually running, or if you've added something like a delay, there's no gigabit seconds running at all. So it's it's a little bit okay. closer to like serverless price, or, or I guess Azure Functions pricing or AWS mm-hmm. Lambda pricing. And then the only other thing is 
that underlying storage account, those that queue or that blob store that you've connected to it that it's using to store and retrieve state, yeah. there's going to be some cost associated with that as well. Right. And what's the what's the billing increment? Is it still 100 milliseconds? It is, so yeah, it's it's the minimum of 100 and then above that it's milliseconds. So it's like oh, the lowest okay. that you'll pay for an execution is 100 milliseconds. If it only lasted 50 milliseconds, you'd be charged 100, but everything on top of the 100 is by milliseconds. So you might be charged like 104 uh, milliseconds, gotcha. but you would never be charged for 79 milliseconds. Awesome. Cool. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, New Relic, and tell you about New Relic Explorer, the latest addition to full-stack observability on the New Relic 1 platform. Now, some people need dozens of tools to visualize their stack, but with New Relic Explorer, that definitely won't be you. You can see your entire system in one place. Now, this thing is awesome. You can view system-wide health with this really cool dense hex view, then filter it by host, service, app, or any other tag to track down issues and focus your attention. You can also get in a statewide view of sudden changes so you can see anomalies as they happen and catch them before they impact your customers. And the best part, it's all included with full stack observability. So one user gets you access to all these features and everything else you love about New Relic. To check out full stack observability like you've never seen before, head over to newrelic.com, sign up for free and start exploring your system today. All right, so let's move on to operational, sort of the operational aspect of this, because that's another thing I think that hangs people up, you know, just when they're getting started with serverless, is they're like, wait a minute, where do I FTP my code to? Or where do mm. I where, where do I put my container? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a different mindset, I think, when it comes to writing and packaging serverless applications. So, um, so you have a bunch of really cool tools. I mean, I think the biggest thing you've got going for you is you created VS Code, right? So um, it's one of the most... <laughs> not me personally, but not yes, personally, folks yes, I work sorry. closely no, with. Yeah, right. So I mean, you have you own a majority of the ecosystem, uh, in a sense, in terms of the IDEs that are out there. And I, I love VS Code. And I, and I honestly fought it for a couple of years because I was, uh, uh, I was a Sublime. I just used to use sure. Sublime. And it was yeah. like... I don't know. And then I switched from Sublime to Atom. And then yeah. I was using Atom. And I was like, Atom is great. you know. And then mm. next thing you know, people are like, oh, VS Code, VS Code. I finally used it. I'm like, why did I ever use anything else? So tell your colleagues there. Great job on that because I, I, uh, I, <laughs> I do enjoy VS Code. Um, but you've built in a bunch of things into VS Code. And of course, there's extensions. And other people have done this too. I mean, AWS mm. has some extensions as well. Yep. Uh, but, but just how easy is it to write a serverless application in Azure now? Yeah, this is one area where I feel uh, similar to durable functions. Like this is actually a pretty slick story, comparatively speaking. Uh, you, Yeah, uh, we, we care a lot about things like Visual Studio Code and Visual Studio for our friends in, in .NET land. Um, obviously, we want to make sure we support whether you're using PyCharm or Sublime or whatever else, mm -hmm. but that's where we're focusing a lot of our optimal experiences on. Uh, so to your point, like there's extensions for pretty much every cloud provider in VS Code now, which is one of the way, reasons it's been a runaway success is right. whether you're developing on Lambda or you're developing on Azure uh, functions, VS Code can still find find value. That said, though, for the getting started experience, so yeah, you pop in the Azure Functions extension. It's going to help you create that first project with a set of templates. But the thing here that folks might notice when they're coming from other providers is that once I get that first thing 
set up. I have my project. You push F5 and you'll see a bunch of crazy stuff happening in the console where the function's runtime will spin up on your machine and give you this really uh, light debugging experience. And I don't mean light in that it's a subset of the features. I mean light in that it's it, it there's just like a little CLI tool that powers this debug experience. You're not dealing with Docker containers. There's also no emulation involved here. So one of the things with Azure Functions is our runtime, the thing that actually like triggers your code that runs all those triggers and bindings, it's open source on GitHub. It's cross-platform. It runs on every OS. It can run in a container. And so that local debug experience is actually powered by the same runtime that we're using in the service to trigger your code. And so it's it's like whatever, a couple megabytes. It installs through the VS Code extension. And now you're just debugging. You go drop a message in that storage account and you'll see your trigger there on your VS Code box execute and it will pass in the data and it will hit your breakpoint. And so that really tight development loop uh, that feels a little bit closer to developing like an express app or a console app or whatever else you might be doing uh, is something that a lot of folks uh, enjoy about that functions development experience. Right. And then right from there, you can just publish it, right? Yep. So yep, publish it or stick it in a container and publish it. Uh, pop it up there, and then we'll just run the same code in the cloud um, okay. for you and do the serverless stuff. So so what about sort of the CICD process for that? Because one of the things, um, I think you and I have talked about this before, uh, infrastructure is code uh, for mm. Azure. Um, there is a solution for that, but mm. um, when you're building a serverless function, you would use you would use a different way to do that? So yeah, you could, like it, the, the, the infrastructure is code like the the final step, the last thing is Azure Resource Manager or ARM, which you can think of it like CloudFormation. It's pretty, and I don't know how unique this is to Azure or not, it's pretty not pleasant to look at. Well, it, it, <laughs> Azure is not alone because other infrastructures, code management systems are just the same, right? So most of the tooling, in fact, all the tooling will generate those things for you. And then you can use them to help deploy your systems for CICD. Still something good to know about and realize that's there. Uh, though often folks are either using like our own tooling and VS Code or things like serverless framework so that mm. you can do this with serverless framework and have a different abstraction. In terms of CICD, though, one of the ways that I've started to do this recently, and I know it's not fully in the like deploying the function, everything too, but at least in the CICD process, there's this new experience we just released a few weeks ago where let's say I go through that local experience and instead of publishing to Azure, I check it into uh, Git or GitHub specifically. Mm -hmm. So I just check my code into GitHub, either a private or a public repo. I can then just go party over into the Azure portal and say, hey, go to this GitHub repo. This is actually the source that I want for my function and go connect it to a function that I actually want running in dev or prod or whatever else. And it will go and create GitHub actions for you, set up a CI/CD pipeline. And so that now rather than manually doing the publish or the build or the test steps, I just check code and open a pull request and mm. merge it into the main branch. And it's gonna actually go and build and deploy and publish my function app using GitHub actions 
but you didn't have to go figure out how to like go, how do I create a CI CD pipeline and GitHub Actions? We'll just go wire one up for you that's got all those best practices baked in. Uh, so that's a, so ARM templates have to be aware of. Be aware of third party services like serverless framework that can make your life easier or Terraform. And then finally, things like GitHub Actions, we see a lot of people moving towards now as well. Right. Yeah. And I know the serverless framework uh, worked very closely with uh, a team from Azure to build yep. in a lot of that functionality. So that's definitely a cool way to do it. And also um, another uh, smart strategic move from Microsoft probably was buying GitHub. There's a lot of tooling that can be uh, that can be done uh, with GitHub Actions, which are, are really cool. And actually, I've been been meaning to dive into those more. But um, no, that's awesome. So, um, all right. So then in terms of the hosting options, you had mentioned earlier, um, sort of that, I guess the professional level or the professional tier there. Um, uh, so what, what are the hosting options? Cause I know you have the on demand, but then you mentioned the professional tier, like what, what are the, what does that mean? And, and what are some of the other options? And, you know, I'm realizing that we should have called it the professional tier. We should have oh. like Azure Functions Home and oh, Azure Functions premium? Professional. It's premium. Yes. <laughs> oh, the professional premium, sounds so much better. No, I li like I, I was like, oh, yeah, Microsoft, we love having professional SKUs. Like right, we really right. should have done that. Uh, yeah, you're right. So the, the, the SKU that the majority of our users are on and for good reason that most folks who go build functions is what's called consumption or consumption slash serverless yeah uh, and then yes the the next click up is this premium tier which as the name would entail comes with a few premium features including no cold start functions that can execute indefinitely there's no kind of cap limit on how long they can execute you get some bigger beefier hardware uh, but it also costs more because uh, it's a premium offering so that's right. why a lot of folks choose that consumption one there's a few other kind of nuanced hosting options which i'll just mention happy to go into them one is that um, there's another service in Azure called App Service Web Apps or Web Apps, mm -hmm. um, which has been around for a long time. It's it's for hosting websites, similar to like Elastic Beanstalk in AWS or right. uh, uh, App Engine in Google Cloud. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have a hosting option where we've got a lot of folks who are using functions alongside their websites to do like background processing. So you can actually choose to deploy your function into one of those uh, plans for like your website and it will run in the spare compute of your web server. So in essence, right. it's free. Your functions are free. You're still paying for your website though. So like you're paying for your website thing and then we just run your functions in the cracks of that. So that's called like hosting it in an app service plan. Um, if you want to even cut down costs more or just keep it warm alongside your web code. And then finally, there's I, I kind of mentioned Azure Functions Runtime is open source. You can stick it in a container. We've got a few folks who, and it's an interesting reason of why, and this is an evolving story, but a few folks who grab that function, they stick in a container, and they'll actually go and deploy it into a Kubernetes cluster. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got a few folks, not very many, like I think in terms of a ton of people in consumption, a few people in premium, a little bit of people running in an app service plan, and then a small fraction of folks who are like, I'm actually going to go run this in, in Kubernetes. Um, I think that captures the big spectrum. Yeah. And I actually, that app service plan you mentioned is, is, uh, 
is kind of fascinating because one of the things that I had a long conversation with Paul Johnson actually about sort of the greenness of serverless, mm. like, you know, running less servers um, because you don't have to power as many machines. And, and that idea of running things in the cracks of other people's servers uh, or of your own servers, I guess, uh, is really interesting. And it sort of reminds me of like spot pricing um, or spot instances that you can do on like uh, AWS. Uh, but I'm going to give you a free idea here. You should let people who are running their own web apps rent out their free compute to other people who want oh sure right. so then you could potentially lower your costs for hosting oh, wow your that's cool that, that yeah that that's uh it's almost like what my internet provider tries to do without me getting money from it where they'll right, let other exactly. people uh, Use your but yeah no <laughs> like there's another element too that we've talked about as a team a few times where it's like i would love a world where whatever compute I'm using, like whatever mm -hmm. I'm paying for, just be like, go, like if I have a function that needs to execute, go see if there's a crack in my database compute, in my web right. server compute. Maybe even like at one point there was some experimentation of like, what if I actually had machines in an office that I could just say like, go yeah. run it on some compute somewhere. Uh, but you're right, that's an angle I hadn't thought about, which is super interesting, which is maybe I'm running a web app and I'm like, look, I'm at 80% CPU all the time. I'm fine to rent out 10% of my my cores um, for someone and then they run their function, they pay for that thing and I get a little bit of chunk of that back to bring down the the cost of even the 80% that I am using. That's a that's a pretty slick idea. I don't know, just a, you know, just came to me. So hashtag Azure wishlist, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So are there are there any limitations though um, that people need to think about? I mean, when you are you know when you're building these apps and, and deploying them again, you mentioned different ways to maybe package those and, and things like that. But um, I mean, are you limited in 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 any sense in terms of what you can do? Like, can you deploy other resources as part of these apps, or like where where, where do you bump up against uh, you know the rough edges there? A few, uh, I, I, there's there's always limitations. I'm just thinking of the ones that I think are are the big gotchas for folks. So one to be aware of is I mentioned at the beginning we have this function app concept where you mm -hmm. can create multiple functions as the part of the same deployment package. Um, so like uh, like think about you have a customer's API. You might have get customers, add customer, and delete customers that you all deploy in the same app, and it's like oh yeah that kind of makes sense. Um, however where people get into some trouble is they'll be like, oh, I'm going to have like 50 functions in the same app and I'm going to have my customer API and I'm also going to have my sales API and I'm also going to have my whatever orders API all in the same app. The challenge with that is behind the scenes, your function app is the unit of deployment. So if you version one thing in your app, you version the whole app, yeah. uh, but it's also the unit of scale which means if something needs to scale or something needs more resources, we do it as one big chunk for your whole app. So I okay. always tell folks, if you're worried about it, just do one function to one app. Like then you're writing in a very similar way to like AWS Lambda, where every Lambda is its own thing. You can do that, that's fine. You're managing more resources, you're managing more deployments, but you know this, Jeremy, it's just like, it's you can survive in that world. It's, right. it's not right. the end of the world. If you do wanna add a few more things, keep it to like three to six. Don't Don't start going above 10. Um, it just becomes a little bit unwieldy and you'll start to see things, um, scale a little bit more slowly, or I guess in general, because they're scaling in these big blocks, um, bigger deployment package, all those things. Uh, the, the run duration is another one, especially if you're in that consumption tier, 10 minutes is the max for a function, unless you're in that premium tier. So be aware of that limitation. Um, 
I'm trying like, yeah, just other like if you're interested in scenarios, I think a lot of these span serverless providers, but things like machine learning where you're trying to do really right. heavy computation, especially like one execution, you want to do like multi-threading, a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a whole lot of success. Uh, we don't give you heavy compute power per execution. Really, the, the, the thing with serverless is we want to scale you out to as many instances as we can. And so unless you can break it into thousands of executions, don't try to do heavy compute in one execution, even if you're on the premium tier, even. Uh, I just don't think it, it uh, not that that's a bad pattern in general. I don't know enough about machine learning to tell you if that's a, a, a anti-pattern or not, but you might want to go look at some other options to find a product that's going to give you a better experience if those are the types of workloads you're trying to run. Uh, that's a few um, that, that come up. I'm sure there's probably more. Yeah, no, and I, I like the idea too of fine fine grained control over mm. sort of each component of my application, right? So I want to be able to scale this more than I want to be able to scale something else. Mm. Or I want to be able to control my memory and and some of those other things. So, um, so yeah, so that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense about sort of breaking them up. Um, also, this idea of I guess you know from a deployment standpoint. Um, things like canary deployments or just like moving things through stages and stuff like that. I know there's something called deployment slots, I think they're yep. called. What, what are those all about? Yep. So every function you can create uh, at least one slot for it if you want. It's most valuable for HTTP traffic. And the way okay. that it would work is like imagine that your function is scaled out across whatever hundreds of cores. It's got an HTTP endpoint directly. Um, you don't have to use API management or API gateway with functions. We also just expose an HTTP endpoint as part of the function. So let's say you're getting all these HTTP requests that are hitting this thing and it's scaled out. You want to version it, as you mentioned. Uh, you could deploy to the slot. And so mm -hmm. this thing's still processing like crazy. Your production function's processing like crazy. You deploy to the slot. You could test it out there. It's got its own endpoint at like slash slot or something make sure things are working. And then when you're ready, the real value of it comes when you're ready to swap it into production. Because without a slot, what ends up happening is like you redeploy on top of the production bits, and then it has to kind of restart and you'll see a little bit of a, a jitter on mm -hmm. your execution count as it kind of updates the code. A slot, we just gradually start to route all of your incoming traffic to the slot. And so there's this graceful handoff where, you oh, know, nice. first it's 10% of your traffic, then it's 20%. We'll just automatically do that balancing for you until eventually your slot becomes the thing in production. And the thing that was in production is now in your slot. And if something goes terribly wrong and you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't actually test this, you just swap yeah. them back. Uh, and you can swap oh, them nice. back and forth and just keep deploying your bits into the staging slot and swap them when you're ready to go. Oh, that's awesome. Um, actually, another thing I noticed too about um, like when you go to the dashboard and you're sort of watching, um, you know, you're watching your functions, uh, you know, you're watching, you know, traffic coming to your functions. It actually gives you like it tells you what server um, it's running on, um, <laughs> yeah. and you can actually see the like that's just I it, it's just a level of insight you probably don't need, but I just yes. I kind of appreciated when I when I saw it. <laughs> And it that like there is yes you are right in 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 the monitoring story and by default we pair uh, with this offering or this monitoring solution called App Insights you can think of it again mm -hmm. if you're in AWS land like X-ray and those types of experiences yep. App Insights does that as part of App Insights there's this feature called Live View and you can see what instances you're running on how many real time executions are coming in it just gives like this real time glimpse at your app um, the one reason though where in Azure land that actually comes in a bit of value is 
One of the differences, um, a little bit late to, to call this one out, but I failed to mention this at the beginning. One of the differences just in how Azure Functions works is that we don't by default do a single concurrency per instance. And so in, mm -hmm. in AWS Lambda, you have one execution happening on one instance at a time, and that execution has full access to the memory and cores that are available. Right. In Functions, we'll deploy you on a server behind the scenes We'll route multiple triggers to the same instance as long as we can see that it's healthy. And then you can actually grow into memory. And we will only charge you for the memory that you actually consume. So if you only consume 128 megs, we'll charge you for 128 megs. If you have a few more executions and your or your function app gets more complicated and you start consuming 512, we'll charge you for 512. Uh, but that does mean that sometimes when you're debugging, like there's pros and cons to that approach around concurrency and pooling and whatever else. Right. But sometimes that live view comes in handy because then you can actually see like, oh, yeah, behind the scenes in the Azure data center, I'm on 100 servers and this is how many requests are being routed to each one of those servers. And maybe this is why this instance had a hard time is because maybe I've got too many functions in that app and there's just mm -hmm. too much stuff running there. Uh, so some concepts that like I want to make sure we're improving the system so people don't have to think about it, uh, but is something that that it doesn't hurt to be aware of. Yeah, no, it's actually it's super interesting because I've, I've watched uh, like a video that you've done um, or one of your demos where you show it scaling. You're just running like your artillery against it or whatever, and you see it scaling and all these things being added. Um, and actually, maybe that's a good question because um, this is something I know there are limitations in other uh, in other clouds. Um, how fast does it scale? So sort of once you're provisioned um, on a single server or a single server, um, you know, does it? Does it scale rapidly or is there a ramp up period that you kind of have to abide by? There's some ramp up period, but hopefully it's aggressive enough that it works for folks. And in general, gotcha. we like we've got metrics from like especially our larger customers who want to do, you know, 300,000 requests per second. Mm -hmm. um, and they're doing some big promotion. We're like, OK, we've got to make sure we do this. Um, keep in mind the, the notion that an instance in Azure Functions is different than a single instance in AWS Lambda. Yeah. But we will add one at most one instance every second. So we will add a new full powered server behind the scenes for every second. Now, each one of those instances might handle 100 requests, um, but it does mean like when you run a load test or when I run those load tests, uh, you often see like a little bit of a spike for those first few seconds where latency is a little bit higher. If I go throw 10,000 requests all at once, the first, you know, 15, 20 seconds you're going to get a little bit higher latency while we hurry and add and add and add and add those servers. Mm -hmm. And then usually after that, you'll see it level off. Um, so that one second, uh, at most one second, adding a server is the number to be aware of. But in general, because concurrency can be different, there's not a whole lot you can design around it. But it is something to, to note of like, if you're worried about load, probably run a load test and you'll see that hill and valley that I talked about um, from that. Right. I mean, and you also have the problem of downstream resources that maybe aren't as serverless as yeah. Azure functions would be, um, you know, and, and having to deal with uh, having to deal with that problem as well, which where is where maybe queues and some of those other things um, certainly could uh, could come into play. Yes, that that tends to be the problem more than not. Uh, folks, uh, I've been on more than a few engagements with customers where they're like, we really want functions to scale like this. We we validate, we make sure they can. And then they come to us a week later and they're like, okay, you were right, but it turns out our database behind the scenes did not handle this as well. So like, can I actually cap the scaling? I need to slow right, it down right. a little bit. And we're like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll work with you here too. Can, can you do that though? Can you cap? You can, can you do yes. like function concurrency type thing? 
Yes. So you can set a maximum to say like, hey, I actually you can't do in terms of like scale slower. You can't tell Mm -hmm. us to scale slower, but you can tell us where to stop and we'll stop at a certain point for you. Perfect. Um, all right. So the other thing you mentioned too is uh, you said there's like a an action versus a regular function or, or an, uh, mm, an activity I, getting, function. Yeah, yeah, an activity yeah. function. I'm sorry. Um, and and so do all functions get an HTTP mm. address? And then what? And then what's the? Would you call it API management? Was the name of the of the service there? So how how does that all interrelate? Yeah, so the the every function does not get an address. Uh, only functions that you say, like, I want this to be triggered through HTTP or through a webhook will get an address. Okay. And then the other ones won't. So, like, an activity trigger doesn't, an event hub trigger, which is like Kinesis, doesn't. Uh, but if you say, like, this is intended to be HTTP triggered, it's going to be an HTTP request or, yeah, or an HTTP request, it will get an endpoint. And I kind of mentioned you could just use that endpoint. Like, it's HTTPS. It's got a certificate. It's free. Um, however, a lot of folks uh, will actually go and add a layer on top of it, like you mentioned, API management. They'll do that for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that you might have you know, 20 different functions and having a single API management where you can do authentication and monitoring and all those things in a single spot is great. The other pattern that this is helpful with too, though, is if you use something like API management, you can just swap the implementation details of these APIs out really easily. Mm. So like maybe you start with, hey, we have a, a big Python Flask app that's hosting yep. our APIs. Maybe I start by hosting that in that web server offering I was telling you about. You front it with API management, you expose all those APIs, and then little by little, you could actually break those APIs and turn them into functions. Right, and your users patterns. still yeah. call the same API, they're still using the same auth, it just so happens behind the scenes you're becoming a little bit more efficient and you're kind of moving to serverless but it's it's you're you're you have this layer of separation between your implementation and the actual surface of your API. Yeah. No, and I that that strangler pattern that is um mm-hmm. it's like I tell everybody like don't try to shift everything over to serverless um you know because it's just that you'll take you too long and you'll never do it so just start breaking off those pieces um, you know, that you can do that and having something like, I mean, again, API gateway or API management in Azure, having the ability to you now just kind of pick off those routes and and send them to different places, uh, I think is super important. Um, but that actually brings up, I, I think, another topic that uh, I'm curious to get your input on is just this idea of hybrid applications mm-hmm. in general, right? I mean, in a perfect world, and maybe my perfect world, maybe not everybody's perfect world, but um, things would be running almost entirely serverless, you know, meaning that you weren't babysitting application servers, you weren't worrying about databases, you weren't trying to provision more things so that it will scale. Um, but there are a lot of enterprises and a lot of businesses and people maybe don't even want to move fully to serverless um, that are going to continue to run these hybrid apps. So whether they're running a Kubernetes cluster uh, for some container stuff, or they've got a bunch of legacy servers running, or they've got a bunch of, you know, SQL Server 2000s uh, still running somewhere in their uh, data center. Uh, you know, what what's the approach to, to hybrid um, at Azure? Yeah, this is, uh, like, I, I would be interested to get your thoughts on this one, too. Uh, I, I almost start by saying the majority of folks in the majority of organizations, I feel, 
uh, in this current time, and maybe actually I'll, I'll finish the answer by saying like the the only rub on this is where things might be headed. But like most folks, I don't know if you have a great enough excuse to do anything hybrid. Um, like if you're working at a small <laughs> mid, like you're probably going to find a lot more benefits. Not that you don't have. I'm sure you have great excuses, and please tweet them at me. I, I would. I'm I, I I'm fine to read them. But like you'll probably find more benefits by moving fully to the cloud. There are still a subset of folks, and, and historically, this is an area that Microsoft has really tried to invest heavily in with like full on-prem stacks. Mm-hmm. I tend to sympathize with these folks a bit when there's like, hey, we're meeting with like a big financial institution. And they're like, we have legal requirements that like all of the compute processing has to happen within this state or this country boundary mm-hmm. and you don't have a data center in this state or this country so does that mean i can't use azure functions yeah and we don't want to tell them no um, so there's <laughs> this the world where hybrid uh does still have merit and even folks who have huge footprints with hybrid data centers that are almost to the strangler pattern it's the other way it's like we can't <laughs> they can't just like shut those off all at once and so that is where we are investing in tools to help make that easier there's a few different things like azure called azure arc that lets you kind of manage resources that are on-prem through the cloud. Azure Functions plays a role in that too. I kind of mentioned you can take functions and you can run them anywhere on-prem mm-hmm. or in the cloud. So there, there's worlds where it happens. And if you're in a world where you're like, I really want to use functions, like all these things sound great. I like the programming model. I like how things become very purpose-built, but right. I might not be running in the fully managed service. Is there still value for me? in functions if I'm not getting function pricing? I think the answer is yes. And I think we have users who are in that mode today who are telling us, no, there's still value in the serverless scale, the serverless resource utilization, even if he's using my resources. Uh, The only other aspect of this that I'm interested to see where it goes is we have been in a few engagements where if you think about like IoT, um, Satya, our CEO, says like oftentimes with iot you want the compute to happen as close to the data as possible Mm -hmm. and so like i was in this engagement once with a sports stadium and they wanted to build a really smart sports stadium with like thousands and thousands of sensors they wanted to be able to process like millions of events every second in the stadium and to them they're like look does it make sense for us to send all of these millions of events to the data center, pay for ingress and egress, have the processing happen there, and then send the data back, adding potential latency and cost? Mm -hmm. Or does it make sense for us to actually have those functions running in the cracks of all of the compute that we already have in the stadium? Um, and, And that is where there's a world where IoT might start to shift this as well, where maybe it will make sense in some of these worlds to have that function running closer to the actual data that it's processing. Um, so it's early days in that, like there yeah. are, you could go look at a tutorial of how to run an Azure function on an IOT device right now, but it's still super early and I don't know where that's going to go. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a, I think the programming model for serverless is, uh, or for at least functions as service is, is, is a useful model regardless of whether you're running in the cloud or not. So mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I mean, even if you are running on prem, um, but your developers have that level of, um, I guess, uh, abstraction where they mm-hmm. don't have to think about, I'm in, I'm, I have to deploy something to this server or I have to, you know, packages a container and I've got to put it into a pot. Like I do all that stuff. If it's just, I'm writing a function that needs to react to some piece of, of logic. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of, of, you know, like I think your stadium example is another 
you know, another great example, which is also probably why compute at the edge, um, you know, is another thing that makes a lot of sense. Like maybe mm. you don't need to be sending all that data back to, you know, Northern Virginia or Oregon or something like that, but you can uh, instead just send it, you know, to your, you know, the, the local uh, cell phone tower uh, yes. that can do some processing, right? And then make a decision in terms of what data has to be synced back to, you know, some home run or, or some other data center or something like that. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 I agree with you um, there. I, I think that uh, that is interesting, but I, I certainly would be against um, just maybe from a, a conservation standpoint, setting up servers in your own data center just to run functions. Like um, I love that idea of running them in, in the cracks. That just seems to be a uh, seems to be a smarter uh, smarter move. I think. Yep, yep, and I and I hope folks don't hear like those kind of scenarios. And, and use them as an excuse to maybe do like be honest with yourself like right. like look at those things I, I i'm not going to tell you everything belongs in the cloud but by and large to your point around efficiency cost even environmentalism um yeah. there are there are benefits at these economies of scale as well yeah i mean and again unless you are a massive sports stadium or a <laughs> huge international bank um, you probably can put your stuff in the cloud and it's going to save you a lot of money. It's going to save you a lot of headache. I, I actually, I, I, I was, uh, I managed a data center for a while, many, wow. many, many, many years ago. And it was, oof, no, thank you. I would never want to do that again. So, um, so, all right. So let me ask you this cause we're, we're running out of time here, but I'd, I'd love to just get your thoughts. You've been, you know, on the serverless train very, very early. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I, I'm just curious, like, you know, where, where are we going with this? Um, I ask a lot of my guests this question, like what's next for serverless or sort of, you know, what's the, what's the future of serverless? Where is serverless in five years, five years, you can answer any one of those questions, but, mm -hmm. um, just, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on where this train is going. Uh, the, the branching from our last talk, the first thing that I feel more confident about moving forward, which was an open question that I've had for a few years is that the value of functions in an application development pattern, regardless of necessarily cloud provider, just the value of that concept of event-driven compute, highly abstracted, highly productive, I think is gonna become more mainstream than it is. Like I still mm. cringe a little bit whenever serverless trends in some hacker news posts and I open the comments knowing that like, there's gonna be a lot of people who are skeptical and they're like, oh no, right. this is like the biggest vendor lock and scam you've ever seen. Haters I gonna think, hate. Haters gonna hate. <laughs> and I think that the value of that model will just grow. Um, and and even just like the whole notion of this is a useful pattern in the same way you think about things like microservices or service oriented architecture, where it's like, oh yeah, this pattern has a lot of value. I think that functions being an essential part of that application, not the whole application, but an essential part is a big thing. I expect that we're gonna continue to see over the next few years, a lot of innovation around state. Um, functions, yeah. traditionally, whenever you're doing a functions overview, it's like functions are stateless and they're short-lived and all those things. Um, I mentioned how we're doing some stuff here in durable functions. Cloudflare just recently kind of entered the space with this thing called durable entities, I think is what mm -hmm. they call it. Uh, I don't expect that to be the last of them. Um, there's some startups like Temporal that are making a lot of noise. I yeah. would expect, and I don't know, but I would expect that like Amazon and Google will continue to innovate either through workflows or other things to just make you managing state right. a little bit easier with functions. Um, the other one, and I don't actually know where this will go, but I'm trying to keep an eye on it. It's this notion of 
I, and I, I hesitate to use the word containers because I think containers has been kind of inflated overloaded. to mean too much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's but there's notion of term. could I take an existing application and make no changes to have it conform to the runtime APIs of Azure Functions or AWS Lambda? Can I mm -hmm. take an application that's written however I want? and have it run in a serverless way. So some, something similar to like what Google Cloud Run offers. And again, I don't think it necessarily has to be married to containers. I don't think containers is the only way to make that happen, but just making things a little bit more flexible, making it so that, and I don't know, like we talked too about like, there's value in you breaking things into functional pieces. So it's this right. balance of like hosting a monolith as a function is not where I want things to go. But somewhere in that, I just think we're going to continue to evolve of, I don't know, maybe there's, I don't know, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking out loud with you here, but I, I think there's <laughs> stuff in that space of flexibility for your deployment um, while still getting many of the benefits of serverless. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I fully agree with that. I, I think the, the biggest change to serverless is the paradigm shift for how you build apps. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just something that... There's so much, there's so much momentum for building, you know, even apps and just using containers. And again, a super overloaded term, um, but I mean, just using, you know, Kubernetes or, or any sort of, you know, darker container type thing uh, and building apps that way, that seems to be, you know, has a lot of gravity right now. Um, and so getting people to shift to the single purpose function um, is not, is probably not an easy thing to do, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. I've, I've thought very much so in that direction as well. Like, how do you just say to people, like, let me take your existing app and I'll make it serverless for you without having to sort of change the, the programming model that, uh, that you're used to. Yeah. And I am like, I do think even when we're talking about composability, like I still see a lot of architecture diagrams, which mm -hmm. are well architected that have so many different function dots all around the architecture. Yeah. And and yeah. one of the the pain points that I always hear back is like, can you make it easier for me to like deal with these tiny little pieces that are running everywhere? Like, yeah, I get the right. benefits and I'm agile, but I, I do expect, I don't know if it's going to like the serverless application model, whether it's, you know, SAM or serverless or whatever serverless framework, I don't know what it is, but I just, there's still room that we've got to go in this yeah. space in serverless to make it, a little bit easier like i think that's part of the appeal that people have with kubernetes sometimes is they're like i have a cluster and like i think about a cluster right and in 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 serverless land it's like well hey good news you don't have to think about a cluster but bad news <laughs> now you're dealing with you know 50 different pieces here yeah and you've got exactly. to version them all and deploy them all and monitor them all as a single app mm -hmm. um so yeah I, i'm curious to see what what we can end up doing in the space and what different providers whether they're cloud providers or, or startups or whatever else do to, to try to make this a bit easier. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what uh, you're doing over there at Azure to try to solve those problems. And uh, maybe one day we'll defeat Bowser um, and save the princess. <laughs> is that what it is? I'm sorry. Maybe I, maybe. I do. I Look, I do think that there will be a world and you, is the numbers go down and down where it's like, I, I, I mean, I hesitate. I, I, I think technology will get to a spot looking at where where cold start doesn't come up anymore when you talk about right. serverless. Um, I don't know when that's going to happen, but it will happen. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for spending um, the, the morning with me here. Um, if people want to find out more about you or you know contact you or find out more about Azure and what it, what's happening over there, how do they do that? Uh, yep. Twitter is the place that I am the most active and, and checking things. 
Uh, so at Jeff Holland, just my first and last name. Uh, I, I'm fine if folks want to email me as well, though. Uh, so jeff.holland at microsoft.com. Shoot me an email. I've got a blog that I'll post some stuff. I was just thinking this weekend. I haven't posted for quite a while. Uh, but I, I love blogging of like, hey, here's how to do in-order processing or here's how to do uh, stream uh, error handling or whatever else. Um, so holland.io is, is my website. And then if okay. functions in general, if you're interested to learn more about Azure Functions, azure.com slash functions. Uh, I think those are kind of four places. Uh, pick your own if you want to have a conversation. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will put all that in the show notes. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Great chatting with you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Jeff Holland for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, New Relic. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 88. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.